This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. is the amazing Dr. Ray Sean Ray. He's a David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institute and a professor of sociology and the executive director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research, also known as LASER, because they are laser-focused on doing good. Yeah, that's my interpretation. Uh, at the University of Maryland College Park, Dr. Ray, it is so good to have you back here on the Larry Daniel Favor Show. Thank you for joining us again. Hey, thank you as always for having me on. I, I really appreciate you uh, noting the work we do in laser, and I, I look forward to this important conversation. Man, y'all, I wasn't joking when I said y'all stay laser focused because y'all really, really do. Uh, and it is so good to, to have black data scientists and experts who are able to see uh, what is happening with the numbers and then who can apply a sociological uh, veil or, or lens through which to evaluate them. You know, after the, the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, we saw so many reminders of just uh, the fact that our lives are often uh, surrounded by elements that cause us to live in fear, Dr. Ray. And, and we are very clear about the dangers of living in urban settings. It seems that we sometimes can't get enough of reporting about the potential for crime and violence and living in the hood. But less attention is paid to the dangers for black people in general and black men in particular of living in suburbia. And this was something that your article uh, entitled The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery highlights the dangers of jogging while black. This was something that you picked up and, and you, there was also a, an even greater study that your organization did on on this topic, when you saw what happened to Ahmad, who, quite frankly, I'm, I'm still uh, torn asunder when I think about his mother's victim statement and his sister's and father's victim statements giving at the sentencing of his killers, when you saw what happened to him, did you see uh, an example of a broader pattern that we perhaps don't talk about quite as much as we do the dangers of living in the hood? Yes, I mean, unfortunately, I did. I mean, as you noted, um, over the past decade, I've done a, a lot of research, as, as some people know, on policing. But what started that, that research was work that I was doing on physical activity. And I did a large study examining the experiences of middle class black and white people. So these are people who were college educated, people oftentimes who lived in very nice neighborhoods, nice homes, made really good money. I was trying to figure out why there was a gap in physical activity between whites and blacks, with blacks much less likely to be physically active than their white counterparts. And to be specific about it, middle-class black people were actually slightly less likely to be physically active than working-class black people. It didn't make any sense, given what we know that socioeconomic status does for people. So I did a large study. I did a large survey. I also did a series of observations, what we call ethnography, that is the, the methodology, and tons of interviews in communities across the United States that were in predominantly black, racially integrated, and predominantly white neighborhoods. One of the things I found in predominantly white neighborhoods is that black men in particular were significantly less likely to be physically active than all other groups. Mm. And it was puzzling because black men were actually more physically active than all other groups in other neighborhoods, in predominantly black neighborhoods and even in racially integrated neighborhoods. So I was saying, what is happening here? And in short, what I found is a criminalization effect. In other words, black men, their blackness became weaponized 
So even when they didn't have a weapon, even when they weren't attacking, they were just going down the street. We saw the way the criminalization popped out. Neighbors calling the police on them. Neighbors mm-hmm. walking across the street. Neighbors shutting their doors. Neighbors doing the sorts of things that don't necessarily happen to other people. And in, in exchange, black men started to engage in what Irving Goffman called a signaling process. Black men would try to signal their middle classness. They would wear an alumni shirt. They would have their ID with them. They would run in well-lit areas. They would smile and wave at neighbors. Like, who does that? You're going on a three-mile jog. Like, who, who's smiling and waving at people? Well, people were trying to deflect that criminalization. So when Ahmaud Arbery was murdered, I pretty much instantly knew what was happening. And it's something that we talk, don't talk enough about because we talk about the dangers of living in urban communities and oftentimes lower-income communities. But those dangers can spill over to black people living in very nice neighborhoods, in neighborhoods where people don't think we necessarily belong. Mm. Now, I know that to the average black person, they're thinking, well, of course, because we black. (laughs) But but this idea (laughs) um, that in every other neighborhood and in every other type of neighborhood formation, you're not seeing the same decrease in physical activity for black men that you see uh, in white, predominantly white neighborhoods. Was this also reflected for black women as well? Or was there a distinction between those two groups also? It was a distinction. And this is where the concept that, that many people have been starting to learn over the past few years has been around for a number of years for academics is called intersectionality. The intersectionality framework highlights that race and gender are not simply additive, but they're multiplicative. So in this regard, you can have experiences for black men, and we can have very different experiences for black women because of what happens when race and gender come together. For black women, we found that their physical activity was similar to their white counterparts, white women and white men in predominantly white neighborhoods. But in predominantly black neighborhoods, interestingly, their physical activity decreased in those neighborhoods. Mm. And a lot of that is attributed to perceptions of crime in those particular neighborhoods. And I say perception because oftentimes what happens is that these neighborhoods were fine. And when I say fine, like they have very low levels of crime, they were overwhelmingly safe, but the perceptions of them were different. And some of these perceptions came out in ways that women are socialized to protect themselves, such as lighting. So in these predominantly black neighborhoods, they had less lighting. They were less likely to have trails and sidewalks. And then they also had fewer spaces to be physically active, just fewer gyms. Part of what that meant is that these particular spaces became male-dominated. As you know, the male gaze that Bell Hooks talked about, God rest his mm. soul, is something that continues to rise up in terms of thinking about what happens to black women and women more broadly when they are in male-dominated spaces. Now, it doesn't mean that that gaze doesn't happen in predominantly white spaces either, but they oftentimes had more resources to carve out women-only zones that did not exist in predominantly black neighborhoods. So you collectively put this together and these perceptions of, oh, well, maybe you shouldn't go for a run. It's about to get dark, whereas a man might just go for a run. Or, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to the gym, but I'm unsure if I want to go at this time because just the gender ratios are going to be off, and I'm just trying to go exercise. So, so we found that if there were specific spaces for women to be physically active, that increased. But on average, even in black neighborhoods where the household income was high, they did not have as many physical activity spaces as they did in, in, in predominantly white neighborhoods. Mm. And then with Ahmad, we have this 
additional scenario in that he wasn't just seen by white people. He was seen by, it, we're really going to tease this intersectionality framing out a bit because and it's funny that you, when you said it, I knew it in my head, but I am quite frankly accustomed to intersectionality being used to explain differences in the behaviors of women uh, who also happen to be mm -hmm. of a particular race. So hearing it applied to men, I don't know why, but I had a momentary, all oh, right, that's exactly what that is. It took me a second just in, even in my own thoughts to sort of catch up to it. So if, as, as we're thinking about this intersectionality, sexual intersectional framework and it wasn't just that Ahmaud Arbery was seen by a random white person he was also seen by white people who themselves had uh, a police background who were part of the criminal legal system and who had participated in efforts to control black bodies previously how do you think that factor also contributed to what ultimately ended up happening on that day it was huge I mean look if we juxtapose how the movement for black lives started with uh, the killing of Trayvon Martin, what many people consider to be a murder, even though George Zimmerman was, a, was acquitted of those charges. When we think about that incident and we juxtapose it with Ahmaud Arbery, these were individuals who felt that they were the law. George Zimmerman felt like he was the law as this, this self-appointed neighborhood watch person. Of course, we know the McMichaels, particularly the father, he uh, was a former police officer. He worked for the DA's office. They felt as though they had the authority to police their community, even when Ahmad was not doing anything illegal. And see, that's what is so key. It harkens back to a time when black people, simply by our mere presence, disrupts the status quo of predominantly white neighborhoods. They simply mm -hmm. don't want us there. It extends to other incidents, whether that be Christian Cooper simply trying to bird watch in a park, or whether that be Amazon drivers delivering packages to predominantly white neighborhoods. Again, even when we are engaging in normative behavior, watching birds in a park, delivering packages in a truck, going for a run down a street that we are legally bound to be able to do, it's about our blackness that disrupts that process. And part of what happens is the McMichaels, um, particularly, uh, particularly the father, felt as though he had the authority to engage in that level of force and that particular citizen's arrest for the person who hadn't done anything illegal. And mind you, of course, people who followed this trial, who've probably seen um, images of Ahmaud Arbery looking in that home, people do that all the time. There are homes that are being built that are being redone. People walk in, look in the home. And, and a matter of fact, there were tons of video evidence of white people looking mm, in those homes. They right. did not disrupt the status quo. It was only when a black person does, and particularly in these settings, oftentimes a black man, where it is, we simply do not want you here. We have the right to defend our community. We are going to get guns. We are going to chase you. We are going to hunt you down like the perceived animal that we think you are to let other people know, other people like you, not to come down our street and in our community. Because, see, that is the big thing people have to recognize, that incidents like what happened to Ahmaud Arbery um, and many, other that, many others that we can describe create a form of collective memory, a collective mm -hmm. memory for black people about where we shouldn't go, but also a collective memory for white people about where they should not allow black people to come, regardless of why we are there. And that is the, the process that we have to think about. And so, yeah, when we think about intersectionality, this is what's so powerful about the theoretical frameworks. Yes, it's, it's typically attributed to the experiences of black women, 
But when you have a theory that is so strong, mm. it becomes applicable to thinking about multiple intersections, including the experiences of black men. Wow. You know, I got to be honest with you, uh, Dr. Ray, most of my friends who have left the hood or, or quite frankly, just left predominantly black communities, which we call the hood, but, you know, are not necessarily even uh, within the same economic status as, as of neighborhoods that I'm talking about people who left black neighborhoods that were doing financially okay. I'm not talking about people who left black neighborhoods where they were, you know, navigating some of the the more challenges, the, the more challenging reality of poverty overlaid with race and over policing and all of those things. I'm talking about black people who just left predominantly black neighborhoods who move into white neighborhoods or whiter neighborhoods will often say that they're doing so because they're safer because there's going to be more opportunities for their children, uh, because there is something about these neighborhoods that present uh, options to them that they do not feel they have within their own spaces. And yet when we think about these types of dangers and these types of challenges, the fact that, you know, black men are literally not exercise, going outside to run in these spaces the same way they would feel like they could in black spaces, that to me makes me question, are we really making an honest choice here? And, and is there something else? Because if you're telling me that I can't be safe in my own neighborhood, and when I move to these white neighborhoods, I'm also not safe, it feels like we're talking about an entire nation that really only has pockets where I can sort of let my, let my skin out, let my hair down and breathe. Um, but largely, it feels as though we are in a landmass that is just perpetually um, one of the most dangerous places on the planet for us to actually live. Am I, is that too hyperbolic for, for what your research is showing? Am I, am I, is there something I'm missing here? It's exactly what the research shows. God when it comes to it. neighborhoods. <laughs> Dang it, Dr. Ray. You're supposed to say no, kids. Laree, you're wrong. And here's why, because yeah, of course no. the land must be safe. No. no, I mean, it's look, I mean, and I mean, look, when we talk about the neighborhoods we choose to, to, to live in and a house in, the schools down the street from those where we send our kids and even the, the companies that we choose to work at. When, when it comes to thinking about this, and oftentimes we're, thinking, we're talking about families, as you said, saying this is safer for our kids. Well, look, parents need to understand, particularly black parents. When you look on greater schools, you look on one of these other websites and you see all these metrics that seem important. The question becomes, which kids were normative in that metric? Dang. Oftentimes it's not our kids. So we have to do an additional calculation. And when we do that, we oftentimes come to a different conclusion about which type of schools and neighborhoods will make our kids happy, healthy, and whole. And when you do that, all of the other metrics will follow. Look, I, I got my Ph.D. at Indiana University. Anybody that has been to Indiana University knows it's 4% black. It's been that way for decades. And they let you know that it's 4% black. Well, I remember when Get Out came out, Larry, I, I, I had an epiphany where I said, that. That was my experience. Oh, my God. They, something finally captured it in a way that I haven't fully been able to describe. Mm. Accordingly, what this means is that research documents that when oftentimes when white people say that they want diversity, well, they do up to a certain point. Like it can't be too many of us moving in, mm. maybe one or two. And then when it comes to companies, oftentimes we know we are hired for our diversity, but rarely are we. But oftentimes we are retained for our assimilation. Rarely are we retained because we keep our authenticity. And when we move into these neighborhoods, oftentimes we are being, quote, unquote, allowed to stay. And when I say allowed to stay, what I mean by that is allowed to stay in a sense where there isn't any trouble just for our being when they perceive that we assimilate. 
whatever that particular mm-hmm. cultural assimilation looks like. The other thing that's important is there to, to that we have to be also very transparent. They said there are some black people who think that predominantly white spaces are indeed better. Like yeah. that is what some yeah. of them think. And it's an unfortunate reality because I'll tell you, going to grad school in Indiana, I saw a lot of students come who were some of the smartest people I've ever met. And they thought that and that space quickly showed and told them that they were not wanted in the way that they thought they were. Mm. So we have to be careful about the spaces we put ourselves into as well as into the spaces that we choose to put our kids into. And we have to be clear that oftentimes our diversity is because people want to highlight it for being hired for representation. But when it comes to to inclusion, when it comes to equity, when it comes to retention, now all of a sudden we still have to walk on pins and needles when it comes to that particular process. Mm. They should have never let you finish school, brother. Because you just <laughs> they have never let you finish school. They never gave you money. They never gave you no money to go learn all this stuff and learn how to say it and cite it and document it. You said we are hired for our diversity, but retained for our assimilation. And I, I guess, you know, thinking about that, there's no real way to, above what you've already identified, you know, wearing a college sweater or smiling and, and real, real hard and waving, you know, vigorously at your white neighbors or people you pass as you're a black man jogging there's no you have to engage in these signals of assimilative behavior so that you are able to demonstrate i'm not a threat in this moment i know you think i am but just know that right now in my presence you are safe and i i guess my my question becomes what happens once we collectively reach the point where we decide you know what i'm tired of waving real hard and smiling and showing all 30 some odd of my teeth uh to these neighbors who quite frankly don't even know that i've been living next to them for the past 3 years uh, because they all they see me as as another black face at a certain point, do you envision a time when we decide that we're going to just stop doing that? And, and what do you think, if so, uh, what impact would that have on our, our relationships with these folks? And if not, does this mean we're sort of consigning and, and, and accepting a, a consigning to really maintaining our position at the bottom rung of the American racial caste system simply because we can't envision anything else out there? Powerful and phenomenal question. So this brings it all full circle. This is the reason why we're less likely to be physically active. See, when we decide that we're not going to keep doing that, there are consequences to that in those particular spaces. It impacts our mental, emotional, and physical health. So not only does it manifest in the fact that we're less likely to be physically active and exercise, it also manifests in our stress. It also manifests Mm -hmm. in depression and anxiety. And then all of a sudden we decide we're not going to do those things there are an additional set of consequences to that. Okay, do we decide that we are going to move? Okay, well, then we know when it comes to home appraisals, that has consequences. Mm. Even when living in predominantly white neighborhoods now, supposedly you're saying you're going to be authentic, but to sell that house, you're going to probably have to move that picture of your great-grandma that's looking all chocolate up in that picture with her Sunday dress on if you want that house to sell. So continuously, we have to oftentimes sell parts of our soul as we experience this double consciousness that Du Bois always talk to us about, and then part of what that means is, is then we go searching for a place where we can be authentic and whole and get what we need. And you know what I found in my research? This, this actually, still to this day, it, it really bothers me that there are only 2% of census tracts in the United States. And, and when I say census tracts, 
People know what zip codes are, right? Postal Service uses zip codes. It's oftentimes how we identify where we live. But census tracts are even smaller than that. Thank your neighborhood. Census tracts, there are only 2% of census tracts in the United States that have a comparable level of whites, blacks, Latinos, and Asians who also have a similar level of education and income. In other words, only 2% of census tracts in the United States where people are similar and you get diversity across the board. Where I did this study at, one of the main sites in Oakland in Lake Merritt, it was one of the only places, and I'll tell you, it was like a utopia. I was like, that little Asian and black kids like playing soccer together mm. and swinging and little Latino and white kids. Like, I was like, where am I at? It was a different form of get out that felt like a utopia. It felt great, but it didn't exist in other parts of the country. And then, of course, you have the other set of exceptions, like might be in the D.C. area in Prince George's County, might be in parts of Atlanta, where you get predominantly black and affluent neighborhoods. But if you're living in middle America, if you're living in other areas, you might not have access to those particular things. So across the board, there are going to be compromises. And one of the suggestions I always make is unfortunately we do have to potentially create a hierarchy of what we are willing to compromise and what we are not and stay true to those particular things. Because when you go searching for where you're going to be accepted, your blackness will let you know real quickly that that's probably not going to be the case. And the hit that that takes to your mental, emotional, and physical health, the hit that takes to your kids, the hit that takes to your finances are grave when your expectations are off thinking that those degrees you got and how much money you make in that car you drive and that suit you got on is going to help you because you know what? Next time you decide to go for a run and take your trash to the street and you got on your baggy basketball shorts and a hoodie, now, all of a sudden, your neighbor's calling the police on you. And as you said, you've been living next door to them for three years, and you wonder why they call the police on you. They never looked you in the eyes to see exactly what you look like. All they saw was mm. your brown skin. And we have to be realistic about that to deal with that process. Dr. Ray, we got to have you back on this show more because I, I have 50, 11 more questions, but the man is about to cut us off. <laughs> we, so this just tells me we have to have you come back. That is one of my commitments for 2022. More Dr. Ray, Sean Ray on the Larry Daniel Favors show because you, they should have never let you out of school, bro. They should have never let you out of school. How can people follow you uh, and stay connected to the work that you're doing? Well, look, so I'm on social media at Sociologist Ray. And, and in fact, today I'm actually hosting uh, one of your colleagues shows. I'm hosting a Laura Coast show from three to six. So once people oh, get through yay. listening to your show, they can turn over and uh, listen to me guest host that. So you you already got me fired up. And, and anytime I can come on your show, I love it. Your questions just take us to where we need to be to help us get Thank through you. life. And I, I just really, really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you. Now, remember, my audience is a little different than the audience she has now. So so temper that fire a little bit, bro. We want to make sure that you can stay on these airways. It is such a pleasure to have you as part of uh, our, our amazing uh, voices on these airways. Thank you so much for being with us again, Dr. Ray. We appreciate you. Thank you for having me.